to give us a great big Blackstone welcome for Don M. from Whitney, Texas. Appreciate it. Always, always good to be asked anywhere, and uh, and good to be uh, good to be here. Good to be sober. Uh, my name is Dom. I am an alcoholic, and through the grace of God and people like you, I've not had a drink now since July 1st of 1975, and for that I'm grateful. I really am. And uh, 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 my home group is the Lake Whitney Group. It is the AA capital of the world, where humility is our primary purpose, and. I, and I need to let you know that because uh, my sponsor, Bob White, who's passed on since 1984, said that uh, if you ever have a chance to get asked somewhere to go talk and you're in front of a group of people in Alcoholics Anonymous, you must always wear a coat and tie you might, because he said you have to clean up and look like you're sober and sane even though you may not be. He said, number one. And number two, you must always tell them that you're from the AA capital of the world, and if you don't, you will be struck drunk within 24 hours. <laughs> so I'm here to report that uh, that is my home group. And if you're home, you don't think you have the best home group, then by golly, do something about it. Stay right in there, hang in there with them, and change it where you do feel that way, because I think that's where Alcoholics Anonymous happens. Uh, for people like us that are asked to come back to a place like Blackstone, it's just more than my mind will allow to me even to conceive. Uh, because they used to always say things to me like, out, instead of come on in, you know. And if you drank like I drank, then probably that's maybe where you came from, too. But I want to first of all thank the committee and the trustees for um, having the courage, not the wisdom, but having the courage uh, of asking me back again after uh, after six or seven years or however long it's been. Uh, you got to hear Precious today, and she did a wonderful job. I'd like to give her a hand. She's lovely. She said, don't embarrass me. Alan Arns have said that a lot, though. I know you know that. When I read the back of your program, I love what it says on the back of your program about this being a spiritual weekend and this being a spiritual life retreat and, uh, and said that is the nature of what we're doing. Uh, I, I'm here to tell you that I believe Alcoholics Anonymous and the recovery program is spiritual, period, you know, and thank God, and we do give credit to thanking God for that particular privilege, but it's good to be at a Retreat or at a conference where we, our primary focus is on the spiritual side of the Alcoholics Anonymous and the Al-Anon Fellowship uh, side of the program. And, and uh, it's an honor for me to be asked that. Uh, as I was in the room earlier after dinner this evening, I was trying to think, well, how do I get real spiritual, you know, real quick, you know, because it won't be long and I'm going to have to be up there in front of the people. And, and every one of the rooms, and I don't know about in the rooms over here, but in the rooms, they basically put in there a, a thing called a Bible. 
you know, and uh, and I opened it up, and it just flopped open, you know, and and when it flopped open, it flopped open to Proverbs, and it describes alcoholism. Now, listen real careful, and maybe you can relate to this if you want to know. I think it's maybe one of the best definitions of alcoholism that I've ever heard, you know, and I learned it tonight, you know, in that room here at Blackstone. This comes from Proverbs, uh, verse 23 in uh, chapter, or ch- uh, verse 18, and it says, Show me someone who drinks too much, who has to try out fancy drinks, and I will show you someone miserable and sorry for himself, always causing trouble and always complaining. His eyes are bloodshot, and he has bruises that could have been avoided. Got a few of you, didn't I? Don't let wine tempt you even though it is rich red and it sparkles in the cup and it goes down smoothly. The next morning you will feel as if you have been bitten by a poisonous snake. Weird sights will appear before your eyes and, and you will not be able to think or speak clearly. You will feel as if you were out on the ocean, seasick, swinging high on the rigging of a tossing ship. I can have you that one. Said, I must must have been hit, you will say. I must have been beaten up, but I don't remember it. Said, why can't I wake up? And then it says and ends, I need another drink. It's in the book. It's in that book. So I thought that was sort of a funny thing to me be able to pick up and read and just sort of have it hit me there. But but I think that probably describes alcoholism, you know. And uh, I have alcoholism, by the way. I don't have alcoholism. I need to let you know that I am an alcoholic and will always be an alcoholic. And, and the ism part of the disease for me... Uh, is the I and the self and the me, and that's the self-centeredness of, uh, of our particular illness. And I think that's what we constantly have to stay and watch over, is the self-centeredness that always can appear. My sponsor told me that my mind was like a bad neighborhood. I should never go up there alone, you know. <laughs> He said, you better have, if you can't get a hold of me before you go up there, he said, at least ask God to come to the meeting, you know. And that's true, because left to my own devices and left to my own way of thinking, I can convince myself of anything, you know. And usually that committee in my head will meet, and most of them are up there. In fact, I happen to believe we have one of the only illnesses or the only disease that the disease is always telling you that you don't have the disease. You know, so it's always up there to get you. And if you leave yourself alone too long without sponsorship and without meetings and without steps and without God in your life, the disease will say you don't have the disease. And I think that's why the alcoholic goes back to drinking. It really is not a big secret. I've watched it now for 23 years. And uh, and what happens is we get away from each other is what we do. We call that missing meetings, you know. And without fail, when somebody comes back to Alcoholics Anonymous, I will say to them, did you quit going to meetings? And they usually go, yes, you know. And none of them have said, oh, man, this last time it was great. I had three weeks in Florida and laid on the beach and all the girls. It's, they don't come back with those stories. They always come back saying it absolutely was worse than it was the last time, and they quit going to meetings. 
So there must be a key somewhere in us attending meetings on a regular basis. And I think a sober member in Alcoholics Anonymous is somebody that attends their home group on a regular basis. And if I'm in the Lake Whitney area on Monday, Thursdays, and Saturday nights, I know where I'm supposed to be at 8 o'clock, and that's in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. My sponsor told me, he said, real drunks get sober at 8. You know, you be there. You know. Yeah, and I said, well, there's a 6 o'clock meeting, and there's a noon meeting. He said, real drunks get sober at 8, you know. What I found out is that's when he went to meetings to check on me and make sure I was staying sober, you know. And thank God for those old-timers. It, it is such a pleasure to be here and to be in the presence of so much sobriety, you know, and to feel like a new pup, you know, because... It is really true. I mean, to see these guys standing up with 35 years and 38 years and 33 years and 40 years, and I think this gentleman sat down on 48 or 50, you know, uh, and I just think that's wonderful. Uh, I have the privilege of still being a junior person in my home group. You know, at, a, at an average meeting, I'll rank somewhere in middle sobriety, you know, and that's pretty neat. Because there's a lot of groups, if you got over 10 years, you got a lot of sobriety, and you're the, usually the senior person in the group. So I'm grateful to have always had and will continue to always have the old-timers around me, and that's neat. And uh, uh, it's been real special this weekend uh, to be in the presence of uh, Dr. Marley and his beautiful bride, Rosita, and I want to thank you for the hospitality that you presented us with. Uh, it's always a pleasure. I call Hal the gentleman's gentleman of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And, and I think he has because one of the things that Hal passed on to me early in sobriety and somewhere along the line our paths crossed out in West Texas early in the sobriety and, and he sort of adopted me. And, and what I learned is that we have to have those people that go before us that we can still hold on to hold on to and continue to live in their legacy. And they, in turn, probably have somebody they're holding on to. And I think that's the way Alcoholics Anonymous uh, is for me. And uh, he has given me that attitude of gratitude that I love so dearly. And I, and I learned that from how a long, long time ago. And when all else fails, sit down and figure out what you're grateful for. And I'll tell the people that I'll work with, they'll say, well, what are you grateful for? What's your attitude of gratitude? They'll say, well, I don't have any great gratitude today. And I said, well, are you in jail? No. We'll write it down. I'm not in jail, you know. And I said, we'll start with a negative gratitude list called, well, what are you grateful for? I'm not in jail, you know. I'm not locked up. I'm not drunk this minute, you know. And, and you go through that list, and before you know it, you can add to that gratitude list and start getting some other things that you're grateful for. Because, again, left to our own device and left to our own thinking, I believe that that we will totally be immersed in our illness one more time, and that is alcoholism, the active disease of alcoholism. And the way we keep it arrested is by continuing to help each other. I also want to thank Joe. Joe uh, carried us over to Petersburg the other day, and 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 uh, I didn't know where we were going. Joe said there's a church over there in Petersburg, and I'd take some folks over there. Would you like to ride over, you and Karen? I said, yeah, I'd like to do that. And I want to thank you, Joe, because that was a spiritual 
trip for me. It really was. It was a neat trip. And he said, well, we're going to go look at some stained glass. And I said, well, isn't that neat? We'll go look at some stained glass, you know. And I don't know if you've been to Petersburg, but if you haven't, I recommend you do that. Because we went to this church, and we saw this stained glass, and we saw a gentleman named Tiffany, who you've heard of probably before. And what Mr. Tiffany did under contract is he he contracted for the Confederate States to put together a memorial in stained glass. And, and what he did is that he created the apostles in stained glass. And and I've been studying the apostles lately, and, and it was just to me was magnificent. And what I left out of there, I felt that there was a little difference in me. Somehow or another, my consciousness had shifted one more time. And because what I saw is the similarity and the goal that I've had in the last six to nine months of my life has been to look for the similarities in each other rather than the differences in each other, not only in Alcoholics Anonymous, but in all areas of my life. And I'm here to tell you, when my consciousness shifted to look for the samenesses instead of the differences, the world became alive one more time. And what I saw in that stained glass over there is I saw Alcoholics Anonymous you know, if you take that beautiful portrait of Paul or a portrait of Peter or whatever apostle was depicted over there, and you took all those little pieces of stained glass and laid them out apart from each other, they would appear to be just a bunch of broken rubble. And that's sort of like we are in Alcoholics Anonymous. Left to our own and prior to us getting into Alcoholics Anonymous, we're just a bunch of assorted glass that appear to be broken rubble. And somehow or another, because of God working in our lives and sponsorship in the steps, we come in here and you all sort of glue us together, you know, or God glues us together, or those old-timers that stood up longer than you were able to stood up glue you together enough to create this beautiful masterpiece or this beautiful mosaic called a stained glass piece. And that's what I saw when I went to Petersburg, and, and that left an impact on me. And, and, I, and I challenge you to go over there and look at that someday and maybe have that same enlightenment that came to me. The other thing that impacted me over there was that we got to stand on the gravesite of uh, 30,000 Confederate soldiers that were buried in that cemetery. Yeah. And that was awesome to be able to stand there on top of that many people that have gone on because of a commitment, because of a commitment they have made and were willing to die over whatever that commitment was or whatever their belief system. But the awesomeness of that, and somebody said, and maybe it was Joe or maybe it was the curator that took us on the tour, but said that 50 years they buried those people in a mass grave. And, you know, for all of us, you know, we would have been dead. For me, I would have been dead for sure if I'd have continued to drink. But they buried those people in a mass grave. And then 50 years later, they dug them up again to find the lapel pins they were wearing so they could put them in the proper states. And now you can walk around this cemetery and see Texas and see North Carolina and see Tennessee. And, and, and it just created a feeling for me that, that uh, I can't tell you what it meant to me. So I want to thank you, Joe, for that trip. You know, I had no idea that was going to be a spiritual trip for me. And, and it ended up being that way for me. Of course, I want to thank Dave and Julie. I mean, we've had fun with them, you know, and uh, we, uh, they met us at the airport and, uh, we stopped two or three places to eat on the way up, you know, and, and uh, 
Finally, he ended up with one, and Julie and I hit it right off right away. We split a beer together, you know. Actually, actually it was a root beer, but we, I said, if that girl drinks root beer in a frosted mug, she can't be all bad, you know. And, and we've had fun getting to know Julie, and that's been a, a real pleasant part of our journey this trip. Uh, they tell me that I'm supposed to share with you my experience, my strength, and my hope. And I'm going to try to do that in a sort of brief way and, and maybe cover some ground tonight uh, so maybe that you can identify with something that I might say. If you're new here, I ask that you stay here. Uh, you got nowhere else to go. I've tried it. You know, I can just tell you that when you're here, you might as well stay here. You don't get here by accident. You might as well just hang in here with us. Don't be like me. For the first couple years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I would bounce in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous and not getting any sobriety. I used to get what I call 90 days. I was a 90-day wonder. Every 90 days, I'd wonder what I was doing in AA, you know. And, <laughs> And uh, and I would take a drink, you know. Now, I didn't get a chip, and I didn't sign a birthday card, and I didn't get a sponsor, and I didn't work the steps. And I sure didn't do what you people did. Because that was not abnormal behavior for me, because I never did do it the way it was supposed to be done. So for me to come into AA and do it your way right off was nothing that I could do. But I'm ha telling you, if you are new here, you never have to go back out there again. And if whatever you have lost to get here, and that could be a wife, a job, a family, your health, and that story goes on and on, from this point on, from this point on tonight, you're no longer operating out of ignorance. There's another way to live, and everything can be added to you from this point on instead of taken away from you. And if you got here like I got here, it seemed like everything was taken away from me. Everything was gone. It just, you know, this was usually not our first stop on block. At least it wasn't for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. So stay here with us. I remember I bounced into Alcoholics Anonymous, and this man met me at the door, and he said, Kid, and I was a kid then, you know, and he said, and I didn't like you calling me kid, you know. And he said, Kid, he said, you'd better stay here with us. And I said, why? He said, well, you look like a pretty smart young man. I said, I am. He said, your best thinking got you here tonight, didn't it? He said, you better stay here with us. And I said, the famous words the alcoholic always says, why? Why? And he said, I'm going to tell you why. He said, this is where the magic is. And he turned around and walked off. And I'll never forget that man in my life because he's right. What we have here in Alcoholics Anonymous is magic. It just happens. And it can't be understood. And it can't be figured out. And you will never be able to analyze this and detail it down to where you can grasp it. And thank God, my sponsor said, if I ever understood alcoholism, I would probably try to franchise it or sell it. You know. And, and he's right. He's right. So people like me could be dangerous. You know. And so what we do is this is a disease is what it is. And I happen to believe it's an illness. But the reality is, is that we will never fully understand how Alcoholics Anonymous works. Because it is a spiritual program. And for us to understand how it works, we would have to have the same understanding that God has. And in that big book, it says deep down in every man, woman, and child, there is the deep reality of God. And I believe that for us. I really do. 
And if you don't have a God of your understanding, I will be glad to lend you mine. You know, I have a strong faith in my God today, and I lend him out a lot. You know, and so if you need one, I'll let you have mine for a while. Don't hurt him, please. I need him on occasions, you know. But uh, I will tell you that that is the system that I think holds us together as far as Alcoholics Anonymous is concerned. I bounced in and out of that program for about two years before, before I finally heard an old-timer say, Cowboy, he said, I think I've got your problem figured out. And I said, you do? You know, and that was sort of amazing that somebody could figure out my problem, you know. And I thought, well, I sure don't know. what What is my problem? He said, I don't think, he said, I don't believe you're having a problem with drinking. Well, that was strange. You know, and I caught me off guard, and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, we've watched you for a couple years now, and he said, we think that you've got getting drunk down as well as anybody we've ever seen. <laughs> we know absolutely without a doubt that you can drink, you know, and get drunk and get in trouble and do what this other book said, let that poison snake jump right up there and bite me, you know. He said, I know what your problem is. I said, what is my problem? He said, you're having trouble with sobriety. He said, you're having trouble with sobriety. And I said, huh. He said, I'll bet you can't stand being sober. I'll bet you hate those sober periods in between drunks. And you know, he was right. For the first time, that man read my mail. He was right. I hated to be sober. I couldn't stand being sober. You know, drunk is what I like best, you know, because that was the point where I didn't have to feel and I didn't have to worry. And if you drank like I drank, you drank so you could get to that place. It only lasts briefly trying to chase it, but that was what I drank for. I drank to get away. I drank to leave. I drank to not think. And I drank so I didn't have to be sober. And didn't know it, and it was called an illness, and it's called alcoholism, not alcoholism. And, and when that, that became clear to me, I walked away sort of mystified. And he said, when you come to these meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and sit in the chair, he said, why don't you spend your time trying to identify with these people instead of, instead of trying to not identify with these people? And I said, oh. He said, oh, and so I went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous then to be able to listen. And if you said, I've been in prison four times, and I hadn't been in prison four times, I no longer have to log that in my computer bank that says, I'm not like them, I'm not like them, I'm not like them, I'm not like them. Because we will develop a terminal uniqueness otherwise that will absolutely kill us without a doubt, you know. And it's called the disease of alcoholism. So if you're new here or if you're old here, and I, and I happen to believe that we need to 12-step the old-timer as well as the new person in Alcoholics Anonymous because you're fortunate to have this much sobriety be able to stand up at this retreat. I'm here to tell you that. Because the old-timer needs to feel a part of, too. You know, and we've been there, done that, and they've been there, done that more than I am. So if you're new, be sure to hang on to that old-timer because that's where your legacy is going to come from. So I, first of all, got a sort of an inkling of maybe this thing wasn't such a bad deal. Maybe Alcoholics Anonymous might work for me if I give it a chance to work for me. Yeah. 
I took my first drink when I was 14 years of age. Uh, I'd have took it early if somebody would have asked me. You know, nobody had asked me to take a drink prior to 14, and and these 18-year-old boys said, you got any money on you? I said, yeah. And they said, can you get 20 bucks together? I said, you betcha. And they said, we'll pick you up on Friday. Bring your $20. I said, all right. You know, they come by and pick me up. I said, what are we going to do? He said, we're going to drive around, drag cars, and pick up some women. I said, okay. You know, I've been waiting for that for a long time, at least two years, you know. And they showed up, and I had my $20, and I was ready, and we went out, and the guy said, give me your $20, and he'd give him $20, and <clears throat> we pulled up this liquor store, and some little old wino went in there and bought some booze and came out and gave it to us, and he took a bottle, and, and each one of us had a pint of whiskey, and it was old crow whiskey. You know, I remember that black, nasty-looking crow on that bottle. Ugh, I see some of y'all out there going, Bleh. You can always tell the alcoholic, they go, Bleh. The other are going, What's old crow? You know. And they passed them bottles around in the car, and they gave me one, and they gave me a bottle of Coke. And that was back when Coke was something you drank, you know. It didn't put it up your nose, you know. And and, and I sat there with my Coke and my old crow, and, and they sort of looked at me, you know. And they continued to just look at me, and they said, you know what to do, don't you? I said, oh, yeah, I've done this a lot. I've done this. I've done this many times. As a matter of fact, you know, and you see, because you always have to. You can't ever let them know that you don't know, you know. And that's the trouble most alcoholics have is we carry that through our adulthood. We're always faking it, you know. I mean, we're professional interviews. We get any job. We don't know how to do them, but we can get them, you know. I had a baby I sponsored when I lived in Hawaii, and he was a telephone man. He went up and got a job as a tile setter. I said, you can't do that. That's not being honest in all your affairs. He said, I needed a job. He said, they needed tile setters. I So about a week later, he felt bad. I said, Ron, you got to go tell them people that you can't set tile. He said, all right. So he went into the boss. He says, I need to tell you, I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm supposed to be honest in all my affairs, and I can't set tile. And his boss looked at him and said, we know. Now, if you're an alcoholic and you know before they know, you'll quit just before they call you in to get rid of you. Yeah, I love them alcoholics. They've been fired in my life, but I've quit 104 jobs. Just before the axe comes falling down. So these boys picked me up and we went out that night and they said, you know, if you hold your nose and drink it down real fast and chase it with that Coke, it won't burn. I said, I know that. I know that, you know. And they waited. So I held my nose and I chugged down part of that old crow whiskey. And God, it was the awfulest taste I've ever had in my mouth. And I spit it and I spewed and, you know, and it was bad. You know, and I thought, I don't know if this is worth it or not, you know. I mean, you'll hear some speakers talk about, oh, it just set off bells and they warmed up and they could be a man amongst men and they were eight foot tall. And Man, I thought it was terrible is what it was, you know. But I will tell you that I drank that pint of whiskey in 28 minutes. I don't recommend that for your first drink, by the way. I was a pretty sick puppy within a short amount of time, you know. And then I learned that they tried to sober me up, and they said, you got any more money in between me throwing up? And I said, sure. And they said, give me $5, we'll get you some coffee, you know. 
And they went and bought me five hours worth of black coffee, and I will tell you, in 1956 or whenever it was, that buys a whole lot of coffee, you know. And they would pour a cup down, I'd pour a cup up. I mean, we just had that deal going on. They finally took me home, stood me between the screen door and the door, and leaned me in and rang the bell and left, you know. And my mother and dad come to the door, and I fell right in the living room floor. And my mother said, My son, he's dead. What's happened to my boy? You know, mothers are like that. They do. They'll love alcoholic boys till we die. They will. They just do it. You just know it. When they old boys, they go home to mama. You know, they're on their way home to mama. They're getting ready to die. You know, that's part of the deal. Yeah. Maybe you girls go home to daddy. I don't know. But she said, what's wrong? And I was yelling, food poisoning on the way down, you know. <laughs> and my dad said, the SOB's drunk. <laughs> and he hauled me down the hall and threw me in the bathtub, ran the shower on me, cleaned me up, took $20 out of my wallet and said, son, I don't mind you coming home drunk, but it's going to cost you 20 bucks every time i got to clean you up. You go, said, you're going to have to learn to drink like a man, you know. I said... Three weeks later, when I was finally ungrounded, <clears throat> I saw them old boys again. They said, hey, where have you been? I said, oh, I've been hanging out another end of town, <laughs> chasing girls. How would you like to go with us again on Friday? You got $20? I said, yeah. I said, but I got a problem. And they said, what's that? And I said, I think I'm allergic to that old crow whiskey. And they said, have you ever tried Haven Hill? And I said, no. And they said, it's smooth. I said, okay. So I went out with them again. I made a conscious decision that night. I had a moment of clarity. Number one, I will never drink old crow whiskey as long as I live. Number two, I will never drink coffee. You know, because if coffee made you as sick as it did me, you would never drink coffee. And to this day, I have never drank Old Crow whiskey. And I drink stuff you can't even drink later on, you know. And I have never drank coffee ever since then because it left in my mind that, that imprint that said, by God, coffee will make you sick, you know. I have no clue how you all consume as much coffee as you do. You just haven't had my experience. I mean, that's all there is to it. Well, I'd like to tell you that was the only time I ever got real drunk and I just got lonely and came to AA, but that wouldn't be true. <laughs> and so I went about my life of improving my story long before I even know I needed a story, you know, and, uh, and that's the way alcoholism, I happen to believe it's a progressive illness, you know. And I drank my way up the ladder of success for a long period of years. You know, we have a tendency to do that when they still say he's a bright, young, brilliant young man, and, and he, he's one of the best men we've got on our sales team, and, and God, we're proud of him. And, and then they would start saying things, but he drinks a little too much, or he gets drunk at the wrong time, or would you believe how much he drank the other night, or why does he get drunk like he does, you know, and that story. And as that story gets worse, your income starts getting less, you know. They sort of have a relationship out there because after a while you can drink your way up the ladder only so long and you start falling down the other side, you know. And it became a roller coaster for me. It was a series of ups and downs careers-wise that kept getting lower and lower on the curve as my alcoholism kept getting more dominant in my life, you know. 
to the eventual point where I just decided that all I really wanted to do was drink. That's really what my goal was. My goal was to hang in there and stay drunk, you know, and I could have cared less. A couple of things happened to me during my active alcoholism, and I'm here to tell you that if you're alcoholic and you leave this room and go take a drink, it'll be worse than it's ever been in your life. It absolutely will be worse than it's ever been in your life, you know, because it is a progressive disease, and something happens when the mind says, oh, you mean I could go to AA? He said, oh, you know, and you go back out and drink. Stuff will happen to you you can't believe it will happen to you. I mean, I started going to jail on a regular basis, you know, and that wasn't anything on my list. And I started carrying guns, you know. I was paranoid and carrying guns. And, uh, I'm fine. I went to an old friend of mine. I got in a fight with an old boy one time at the country club and had to do something with his wife. I never could get all the details down. And and, uh, <clears throat> and uh, I beat him up in the parking lot because he was trying to beat me up. And and I, and I thought I won, you know, but I really was losing because I was bloody too. And we sort of kept score on who was the bloodiest and who had the most broken bones. You know, that's sort of how the alcoholic thinks they win, you know. And I said, boy, I beat him up. And the guy said, oh, don't worry about it. He said, he'll kill you. He said, he killed no war in Hendersonville. He said, not too long ago, about four or five years ago, went to penitentiary for three years. It was self-defense, but they still sent him away for three years. He said, he'll shoot you one of these days. That's what he does is shoot people. <laughs> well, that's frightening for an alcoholic. <laughs> I mean, that guy's going to shoot me, you know. So when you get that new information in your head and you're drinking and you start getting paranoid, he starts leaping out behind trees that aren't there and doing that sort of stuff. So I decided I need me a pistol. So I called a friend of mine who was a Dallas policeman. I said, I need me a gun. He said, what for? He said, I said, kill somebody. He said, what are you going to do that for? I said, because you're going to kill me. He said, oh. He said, I'll get you a pistol. I said, okay. So we was drinking one night, and he handed me my pistol, you know, and I said, what is it? And he said, it's a 380 automatic with a hair trigger on it, and he said, it's got a nine-clip nine clip chamber in it. He says, he said, it'll flat kill him. I said, all right, you know. <laughs> so then I carried that gun around, you know, and, and I put the clip over my visor, and I put the gun between the seats, and I was driving a big old pink Lincoln. It was about eight foot long on the front hood, you know, that old hood that stuck way out there, and I looked like a pimp running down the road, you know. <laughs> and I'd practice grabbing that visor, grabbing that clip, throwing that gun, and getting it ready to go, and, and I'd practice getting the sun behind me so it would blind him, you know, and I mean, oh yeah, you got to practice the whole deal, you know how we are. Guy told me, he says, he said, Maloney, he said, it's about four or five months later, and he, I was at the club drunk again. He said, Maloney, that old boy's back in town. I said, the hell he is. He said, yeah. He said, he asked about you. I said, oh, oh my God. <laughs> so I'm driving down the road one day, and I thought, I ain't got any bullets for that gun. I better get me some bullets for that gun. I mean, I've been practicing all this time, but I ain't bullets. So I went in the Gibson store up in Tyler, Texas, and I walked in there and I said, uh, I need some bullets for my gun. And the guy said, what kind of gun you got? And I said, a little bit of gun, you know. <laughs> he said, no, it's important we know what kind of gun it is to put bullets in it. I said, oh. I said, I'll be right back. I went out to my pimp mobile and got my gun in there and handed it over to the guy in the sporting good. And I said, fill it up. 
He started asking me all kinds of questions. He said, well, what kind of shell do you want? I said, I want one that will fit the gun. He said, well, we've got lead-headed shells, and we've got hollow-point shells, and we got, you know, and he started going through this whole litany on different shells. I don't know nothing about guns. You know, never had a gun in my life. I said, I want the most expensive bullets you got. He said, what are you going to use it for? I said, if I stood eight people up in a row and shot the first guy, I want the eighth guy to drop dead. He said, and then he started getting exciting. He was a little weird. He said, I got some stainless steel jacketed bullets that just came in here. I don't have a clue as to why we got them. He said, I got a whole box of them. I said, how much are they? He said, a dollar fifty a bullet. I said, I'll take the whole box. And I had silver bullets, you know. And man, I thought I said, now I got a gun, bullets, and I'm on my way. Well, I'm riding down the road drunk one night, you know, and I, and I got to thinking again, you know, and, and the thought called, I had this clip and draw pretty good and was timing myself, had it down pretty good, but I got to thinking and what thought was, wonder if I fire this gun and it don't work. I mean, wonder if it don't fire, you know. I ought to at least practice, you know, a little bit, make sure it be able to shoot, you know. So I'm rolling down that window and I'm driving along that big Lincoln and Cocked that gun, put that clip in there, and held it here, and I'm driving with my left hand here, and and I fired it, and it went bang, 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 and that thing went off five times before I could shut it down, you know, and scared the hell out of me. And I thought, my God, you could get hurt doing this stuff, you know. And I'm going to tell you, when you shoot a gun off inside a car, it makes noise, you know. I took the clip out of that gun, put it back over the visor, and I swept it from my left side to put it back between the bucket seats. And as I went across, you all forgot to tell me that when you put a bullet in an automatic, there's always one in the chamber until there isn't any more bullets, you know. And as I took it across my left leg, my finger hit the hair trigger and it went off and shot a hole right through my leg. Went through the top of my leg, the bottom of my leg, went through the seat of the car, went through the floorboard of the car. I think it may have killed some old boy in China. I took the gun and threw it out the window because it hurt me. Yeah. I went home drunk with a, oh, when I was going to die, and he was dying, I thought, my God, I've killed myself. <laughs> and I thought, you know what they're going to say? Poor Don. If you was married to her, you'd have killed yourself too. <laughs> and those kids and that job, you know. And I thought, I don't really want them to think this is a suicide. Now, I threatened suicide several times, but, I mean, I wasn't serious. I was just doing that to get attention. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I thought, I better do something quick. I'm dying. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll leave him a note. Tell him it was an accident. <laughs> well, I didn't have any pen and paper with me. and So I thought, well, I'll just leave it in blood. And I had plenty of that flowing. So I dipped my finger in that hole, and I was writing on the window. 
this is not a suicide, you know. And I died. I just fell dead, you know, and I passed out is what I did. I went into shock, and, and I woke up, and I was still alive, you know, and had blood everywhere. I mean, you know, and I went on home and threw myself on the hood of the car and yelled, I've been shot, baby, you know. Never hit an artery, never hit a bone, just went right through that leg, you know. Wow. <clears throat> when I traded that car off, that old car dealer said, Maloney, he said, how many Lincolns you ever bought from me? I said, oh, I don't know, eight or ten, Johnny. He said, if I ever, did I ever ask you when you come in here and the fenders are all bumped up? I said, no. He said, did I ever ask you that time you come in you had your back taillights shot out? And I said, no. I said, if I ever ask you any questions about your cars when you trade them in? I said, no. He said, I got to ask you. He said, how'd you get a bullet hole in the seat of your car? <laughs> I said, I don't know, Johnny. <laughs> can't tell everybody you're running around shooting yourself. You do that at the Baptist church and they look weird at you. <laughs> One other story before I sober up. Uh, I was bouncing in out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my father, who's passed on now, he passed on in 86, uh, used to drink with me. And we'd get drunk once a week, about all we could stand, you know. But, but we'd drink about once a week. And, and I was in the apparel business at the time, down at the apparel mart in Dallas. And I was high rolling, as usual. And uh, we left the mart one day, and we went over to one of the better places to drink. It was called the Blue Note Lounge. You can tell by the name that it was elegant, you know. And we were in there drinking elegant drinks. We were drinking fish bowls of beer and shots of whiskey submerged in the fish bowl, and we call them depth charges, and you go, Ugh. And the object is to mix that whiskey with that beer without that shot glass hitting you in the nose, you know. And you can do it if you're pretty good, you know. But we were drinking those beers, and I was pretty well wasted, and my dad said, Come on, we got to leave. We got to go home. He said, I've been here too long. He said, well, your mother's going to be worried about us. And I was in between wives, you know. And he said, we got to go home. I said, all right. I said, I don't, I can't leave now. I said, I've fallen in love with this girl, you know. He said, just look at her. And he looked at the girl I'd been sort of dancing with, messing with, you know. And she was laying up on the bar, and she had her head down on the bar. <laughs> And it was back when all you women wore wigs, and her wig was laying alongside her head. He said, look at her. She lost her hair. And I said, it didn't seem to look that bad, you know. He said, get in the car. Let's go. I said, all right. So we left, got outside, and I never eat when I'm drinking. I'm not an eating guy. I'm a drinking guy, you know. And all of a sudden, the hungers was flung on me, you know. And I look across the street, and there's a church's chicken. I don't know if you all have church's chicken over in this part of the world, but I went over. I said, Dad, i got to have me something to eat. He said, Son, you're too drunk to drive home. He said, I'll follow you home in my car. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Somebody's too drunk to drive, let another drunk follow him home. <laughs> Y'all have probably done that. He's too drunk, we better watch him. 
I go over to the chicken place, and I said, I'll be right back. And I stumble up to the chicken place, and, and they got one of them little window deals, you know, you walk up to. I don't know if they still got them around here, but I walked up to that window place, and I grabbed a hold of the window. It had a little counter stuck out like this podium, and I grabbed a hold of the window, and that was the first mistake I made. You never grab a standard uh, stationary object when you've been drinking, you know. Because when I grabbed a hold of that window, that whole churches was moving. And my job was to hold it down, you know. And this lady opened the wind up, and she said in those words that they say when they look at you when you're drunk, you know, and their families have done it, and your wives, and she said, what do you want? I said, I want some chicken. She said, how much chicken do you want? I said, how much chicken have you got? I mean, we were into the chicken war. And I was going to win. I knew I was going to win, you know. I said, I got more. I want more chicken than you got. She said, I bet you. And I said, I don't want. She said, you want corn? I said, I want a lot of corn. <laughs> potatoes? Give me a bunch of potatoes. Gravy? I'll have some. I even bought peppers, and I don't even like peppers, you know. So all of a sudden, I got this big bucket of chicken, and I got all these fixings, and I'm getting to the car, and my dad said, get in the car. Get in the car, you know, and he's mad and angry. I get in, and of course, once you get in the car, you got to set it up. I mean, you're going to have a picnic. you got to get it ready, you know. And so I'm laying all the chicken out and the biscuits, and you know, and I've got my drinks mixed, and, you know, and I'm re- I could live in my car for two weeks based on my food supply in that car. He said, we got to go. I said, all right. So we got in the car, and he followed me for a while. And I was riding down the road eating chicken and stuff and drinking whiskey. And, you know, man, life don't get any better, you know. I had a big yellow Lincoln then, traded that pink one with the bullet hole off, you know. And I saw this big wreck up there, and I thought, my God, it looked like eight or ten traffic or tractor-trailer trucks had all collided together, and all them taillights was on there. And I thought, oh, my God. They've had a wreck, and I'm going to have to slow down, and the cops are going to say something to me, and I'm going to have to talk about the lineage of the family, and they're going to get into that argument going back and forth, and they're going to send me to jail again. And and I just see the whole thing, and I was just scared because I thought, my God, I'm drunk. I'm going to jail one more time, you know. And as I approached that wreck a little closer, I had some relief, and I found out it wasn't a wreck after all. It was the Dallas North Tollway. And those were the lights on the toll gates, you know, where you went through. And I was really relieved. And then I pulled right up there to the booth. My dad is right behind me in the car. And then I figured I got another problem. I got a new dilemma. How am I going to get 20 cents out of my pockets without getting chicken all over my pocket? You know, and I thought, well, if I just throw in 2 or $3 worth of chicken, it'll sort of even out. So I reach in there and pick out the wings and stuff I don't like, and I'm throwing it in the toll booth, and my dad's behind me honking the horn going like this. I threw in 2 or $3 worth of chicken. I went right on through there, and that lights and that chicken ate up in that basket, you know. He pulled off at the first exit and didn't call me for two weeks. Yeah. I said, how come you didn't call me? I could have died. He said, yep.
I finally used up that relationship with my mother and father. And for alcoholics, that's usually the last relationship that we use up if you still have one around, you know. Because they're the, usually the last people that will love you when you can't love yourself, and that's your parents. And I finally used that up. And my dad was a drinking man, and he drank with me. But one day I came up to the house, and I was sober that day. And I said to him, I said, Dad, I said, how's it going? He said, Son, I need to talk to you. And I said, Fine, what you need to talk about? And he said, Your mother and I have had some talks, and we've decided you can't come over here anymore. And I said, You mean when I'm drinking? He said, No, I mean anymore. And I said, You mean when I'm drinking? He said, No, never again. He said, we love you. He said, but you are now screwing up our relationship. He said, your mother and I spend more time arguing about you and discussing about you to the point where our relationship isn't working anymore, and we're not going to lose our relationship as, as a result of you trying to lose your life drinking. And he says, I love you. He said, but we don't want to see you again. And I'm going to tell you that went right to my soul. That went right to my soul. And I said, the, the voice inside me, outside was silent, but the voice inside was screaming, how could you do this to me? I mean, don't you know that you're the last thing on earth that I've got left? Because I've lost my wife and my kids and my friends and my banks, and all that stuff was gone, you know. And they were the only ones left. And I said, how could you do that to me? And I used to go over and drink whiskey, and I'd get me a bottle, and I'd go over and I'd sit in their driveway, and I'd drink that bottle and cry. And just cry. And I'd see my mother go to the window and peek out, and my dad would shut the window and let, wouldn't let her go outside. And then once a week on Wednesday, I was living in a lake house at Cedar Creek Lake. They, my mother would come over on Wednesdays, and my dad would let her come over, and he'd drop her off for one hour. And she'd come in there and clean up my vomit and clean up the mess and try to get me to eat some food and, and do the things to keep her only keep her, keep her son alive. I, she had another two children, but I was sort of the favorite. We alcoholics are the favorite. We really are. And I will tell you that that killed my soul. I think that was probably the turning point for me where I had finally woke up. Now, I've been in and out of AA for a couple of years, bouncing in and bouncing out. And all of a sudden, I had nowhere else to go but to Alcoholics Anonymous because I knew without a shadow of doubt that my life was over as I knew it. And life did not work on my terms. And it maybe was the first real honest time that I knew it. And I picked up the phone and I called you people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Called a guy named Royce and I said, Royce, I can't stand it any longer. I said, I want to come in. He said, we've been waiting on you. We've been praying for you. He said, we'd love to have you. He said, I'll come out there and get you. And I said, no, I can drive in. I'll be all right. You know, I couldn't even walk, you know, but that's how we are. I know I'll be all right, you know. So I got up my shave and I showered best I could and I put on my clothes and I got as far as Seven Points, Texas and I had to go use the restroom and there was a liquor store that I went to and I went in to use the restroom and I came out and there was a bottle of Jack Daniels Green Label and there was a Coca-Cola and there was two cups of ice and two packs of cigarettes and two Slim Jims. And I never asked for them. You see, that was my standard order. And the, and the guy at the liquor store said, starting early day, aren't we? You see, he knew what my order was. I couldn't embarrass him, say, you know, I don't think I'll have that today. I'm going to AA, you know. 
So I got in the car and he was watching me. And I know he was watching me with those eyes, those eyes that people look at us and say, isn't it sad that that man is killing himself one drink at a time? Why does he do that? Why does he do that? And I mixed me a drink and toasted him. And, and I drank all the way to Dallas. And it's not, it was about 80 miles from where I was living. And it took me about six hours to get there. And I came to and finally came out of that blackout. And I was in a bar over on Greenville Avenue. And I was drunk. And I had found two newfound friends. And we were all drinking whiskey and shots. And, and I was knocking you people. And I was cussing Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was telling them how it wouldn't work. And there wasn't any sense of them ever trying it if they wanted to. And I went to the phone to call Royce out of some reason. I called Royce to let him know that what I thought about AA. And he said, where in the hell are you? And I said, I'm at the cave on Greenville Avenue, and this is what I want to tell you. And he hung up the phone. And he came through the door of that bar and, <clears throat> and sat down on the bar stool next to me, and, and we talked. He never talked about Alcoholics Anonymous. He never talked about you people. He never talked about sobriety. And then he said, Don, I need to go, and I need to let you know two things before I leave. And he said, what's that? I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, because if I don't go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, I will forget that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And for me to forget means that I will drink again. And for me to drink again means that I probably will die or go insane or be locked up permanently. He said, I need to tell you two things. One, I love you. No man has ever told me that in their life, you know. And I wouldn't let him. And I said, what? He said, I love you. And he said, number two, you do not have to live the way you're living. There's a better way. And he turned around and left. And he hit the door. And when he hit the door, I said, Royce, God, take me with you, man. I can't stand it any longer. He said, come on. So I got outside and I said, I'll follow you in my car. He said, no, you won't. He said, get in my car. I said, just a minute. And I went over to my car and reached under my seat, pulled out my bottle of whiskey. And I took my bottle of whiskey with me. And I sucked on that bottle all the way to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I walked into the Preston Club in Dallas, Texas, where I'd been in and out of for a couple of years. And a guy met me at the door and he said, son, he said, we sure are glad you're here. He said, but you can't bring that jug in here with you. He said, this is for people that don't want to drink alcohol. And if you want to drink, we'll respect your rights to do that. We've watched you for a lot of years. We know you can do that. But you can't bring the bottle in here. He said, but uh, we understand. We love you. So I went down to the restroom to think on it. And I got in the last stall at the Preston Club. And I'm sucking on that bottle. And now I have nothing left in my life that's worth living for. I don't have any family that talk to me. I don't have any friends. I'm out of money. I'm broke. I had an old dog that still liked me barely, you know. And, and I mean, I'm flat busted out. Got nothing worth living. And I'm sitting in that commode trying to decide if you people have what I want or do I want what I already have. I mean, that is so insane, and that's why this illness is cunning and baffling, because it will whip you down to the next level, and you never know you're there, and you always say, if I ever get to here, I'll do something. And when you get to there, you're down to here, and before you know it, if you don't die, you will hit bottom and then look up to us one more time and say, I need help. 
Now here's a guy that's got nothing, nothing. And I took that bottle and hid it behind the commode. And I said, I guess I'll go try one more meeting. And I walked into that meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and that was on June the 30th of 1975, and I haven't had a drink of alcohol since, yeah. as a result of you people. So Alcoholics Anonymous works for people like me, and I know it will work for people like you. Now, let me tell you about sobriety. Best thing that's ever happened to me, best thing that will ever happen to you. We have a way of life here that is so miraculous and so unbelievable, you won't know it until you get in it. And when it gets good, it'll be so good that you'll have to give it up. My sponsor used to say to me, son, he said, what alcoholics have trouble doing is experiencing the good in their life. Because we get six or seven good days in a row, we say, same old stuff, nothing ever happens. <laughs> you know, and we get so used to the good in our life. Bob White used to say, he said, you've got to give up the good in order to experience the better. And he said, if you'll give up the good as you see it in your life... You will always experience the better. And one day you give up the good, whether it be good job, good wife, good whatever the case may be, as good as you think it can get, because we don't know how good it can get. And when we give it up, all of a sudden it just gets better. And then after four or five days of it being better, you know what happens? It's good. Because it's so better, it just gets good again, you know. And then you got to give it up again to get to better. And he says, what we have here is a process. And I think Chuck C. said it's uncover, discover, and discard, and it happens on a regular basis. And I will tell you, I know less about Alcoholics Anonymous and how it works today than I did five, six years ago when I was here, and I did in my first five years sobriety. And I think the longer I hang out here, the more I know that this is definitely a God program and not a Don program, and it works because I let it work today, and I experience the action of Alcoholics Anonymous and the faith that I have in Alcoholics Anonymous without having to try to run the deal, without trying to run the deal. My fourth year of sobriety. I was a legend in my own mind by now in AA. You know, I was running Alcoholics Anonymous, going to rewrite the book, going to get it off. I mean, I was doing the deal, served on halfway house boards and hospital boards, and y'all been there, you know. Usually it happens somewhere between four and six years. We're doing everything, you know. And of course, I'm not paying attention to my marriage, and I'm not paying attention to my business, and I'm not doing the things I'm supposed to be doing, and, and I end up crashing and burn. You know, I went broke and I went bankrupt and I got divorced. My dad was dying of cancer and all that seemed to happen one day. By the way, that dad, before I leave him, when I took my first year chip in Alcoholics Anonymous, he came to my birthday celebration and saw me get my first year chip and he never drank again after that day. And every year when he was alive, he would come to my birthdays and I would give him my old chip. And so when I had two years, he would have a year. And we kept passing that chip down. And, and that's the miracle of you people, because he saw you people through me. He never could see me through me. He only saw me through you. And that's the way Alcoholics Anonymous works. 
That's the way Alcoholics Anonymous worked. So life had not worked on my terms. And in that fourth or fifth year, one more time, I was Mr. Important. I was all important, and I had become really ill. Self-centeredness is the nature of my illness. It says so throughout the book. It says we think that our troubles center in our mind. We think that our problems of our own making. Lots of places throughout the big book it talks about our primary illness, and our primary illness is self-centered. To the point where we can't stand life based on life's terms. And without me and you together, we go back to drinking alcohol or doing drugs or whatever you do to escape from the reality of your reality. That's why we need each other. That's why we will always need each other. Because of ourselves, we can do nothing. Self-knowledge avails us nothing, it talks about in the big book. I crashed and burned and went broke, went bankrupt and was sentenced to Lake Whitney, Texas, you know, from Dallas. And I was a high roller from Dallas. And I was sentenced to Lake Whitney, Texas, and they turned me over to a guy named Bob White. And Bob put my life together. We studied a book called Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he gave me an assignment in the morning, and I had to report back at 5 o'clock and tell him what I did for the day. And I couldn't date for one year, and I couldn't speak in AA except to give my name and sobriety date for one year. I remember one time I snuck off to Waco 30 miles away and talked in the noon meeting, and he heard about it before the day was up. (laughs) I went in there at 5 o'clock, and he said, I said, how'd your day go? I said, went fine. Had did do is that what you did what you told me to do today? He said, "I hear you've been talking." <laughs> they know that stuff. I don't know how they know that stuff, but them sponsors always know that stuff. I'm finding later on they know that stuff because they did most of it, you know. And you can set your watch to the progression of alcoholism, even in recovery. You can do that. You can just absolutely do it in recovery. Well, I had to learn about my illness, and I had to learn about being self-centered. And I knew nothing about relationships. I've been married twice and divorced twice and had girlfriends in between, and I didn't know how to have relationships. I took hostages in relationships rather than trying to have relationships. And I had reactionships. They react, I react, and we knew how to do all that deal, and then came along precious, you know. She told you how we met, and she told you how we got together and what we did when we were together. You know, and that's been the best thing that's ever happened to me. But I've had to learn how to have a relationship with another human being. And my sponsor, Bob White, said, Cowboy, we might as well start at home where you're married. I remember I walked in there. I was about a year married, not a little less than a year, and it wasn't working. I mean, it just was not working. I mean, things were not working well at all. And I went into Bob's office, and I said, Bob, I made a mistake. I've picked the wrong girl again. She doesn't mind. She doesn't do what she's supposed to do. He said, son, he said, this is your third marriage. I said, I understand that. He said, how would you like to not have a fourth or a fifth marriage? I said, well, I'd really like to not have to get married all the time. And he said, well, let's work on this one. He said, are you willing to go to any lengths? And I said, I am. He said, all right. He said, you're willing to do anything I tell you to do. I said, that's right. He said, I want you to start making the bed together every morning. I said, what? I thought that crazy old man ain't heard a damn word I said. <laughs> I got problems. He wants me to go make a bed. I never, I never made beds in my life. 
He said, I want you to go home and make the bed with her. He said, Marceline and I have been making the bed ever together for 30-some years. He said, it seems to work for us. He said, you will eventually have to agree on how to make that bed in order to get out of the house. You know. And I said, oh. So I went home, and she was in that position. What did he say? Because she knew I was going down to see him. I said, he said we had to make the bed. She said, he did not. I pick up the phone. I call him. I said, Bob, tell her what you said. And he said, Sugar girl, I said that y'all need to make the bed. She said, Really? I said, Yeah. So we started making the bed together. Two weeks into making the bed, I decided I'd punish her one day. I was mad. She said, We still got to make the bed. I said, I'm not making the bed today. She said, Well, Bob said you had to. I'm not doing it today. I'm just not doing it. I'm leaving. And she said as I hit the door, you'll have the worst day of your life. (laughs) And it absolutely was the most miserable day I've ever had in my life. And I don't have a clue why making the bed makes your life better, but I'll tell you, I don't go anywhere without making the bed. You go over to my room night and them beds are made. You can't believe the couples we work with. And they said, I don't think it's working. I want a divorce. I'm getting ready to leave. We'd say, well, you're going to go. And how about making the bed? They go, what? <laughs> the other thing that Karen and I have learned, and I think we learned this. We just sort of picked up on it from each other. But we just come out of one of those debates. You know, we don't argue and fight anymore. We just debate on occasions, you know. And we were debating just before we went to the club that night because, you know, you got to look good when you go to the club. They say, how you doing? I say, oh, we're doing fine. You was about to kill her in the car, you know. <laughs> Y'all have done that, ain't you? Huh? That's when she said, she says, if they only knew who you really were. <laughs> I want to say, yeah, me too, you know. We walked in there, and for some reason, it was an open meeting, it was a speaker's meeting, and we were standing there, and we were not sitting together that night. You know, when you're debating, you don't sit at the same table. And when the meeting was over, you all closed in a normal, usual manner, and when you closed in the usual manner that you did, when it came to the part that said, please forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, I looked up and saw her, and she looked up and saw me, And we forgave each other. And we forgave each other. And I will tell you, every time that we're in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or in a big group in an open meeting somewhere, and we say the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting, we always look at each other and catch each other's eyes. Because that sort of gives me a tenth step automatically, just in case I might have been one of those bad boys. And you cannot believe the number of couples we have now making beds and forgiving each other in a meeting. And that's the way Alcoholics Anonymous works. You see, it's the little things that make Alcoholics Anonymous work. It's never the big, big, big things that we always look for. It's just the little things like having problems, make a bed. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they give you the goofiest answers in here to the complicated problems because it says in the big book, Most good ideas are simple. This is our simple kit of spiritual tools. And it goes on to talk about the simplicity within the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is so simple that we almost miss the program on occasions. 
I love that lady today. I love her with a passion. In fact, today I think we love each other more than we've ever loved each other. And I'm not here to tell you that because we're here to tell you that's just the way it is. And we love who we are and who we are becoming. And I think becoming is the key word for us because that's where we're at. We're going through some new shifts again. Two years ago, I entered into the hospital and I had throat surgery, and they cut my throat. They've been trying to do it for years, but, you know, I had to pay the guy to do it, and they went in to remove a tumor. And I had all you people praying for me all over the world. They were praying for me and doing prayer vigils and the whole deal in my church group and my AA fellowship and everybody else, and they couldn't find the tumor. They gave her in there four and a half hours. The doctor said, I can't find the tumor. And I was mad. I mean, you know, Karen said, maybe it worked. Maybe the prayer worked. I said, oh, you mean it could have worked? He said, yeah. So I cut my throat and I survived that deal. And, you know, for a while they didn't know if I was going to talk or not, you know, which is the only thing I know how to do. Later on, next year we rolled along pretty good and everything's doing fine. And you never know. And I've never been sick a day in my life, you know, up to that point. I've never been in the hospital except the day I was born. I mean, I was just didn't have time to do it. And... Uh, Took time out last year uh, to have a little open heart surgery. You know. In fact, it was a year ago this week I had open heart surgery. I'm not here to tell you that because everybody's got a story bigger and better than yours. I told Kenny, he said, oh, I've had two. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sure, Kenny, before it's over, there's going to be a guy come by and say, I had four. You know. So there ain't no big deals. But I will tell you for me, what it did for me is it was my grand opening. It was my grand opening. It opened me up to a new consciousness and a new level. Because they lost me during not the operation. They lost me before the operation. They lost me in the hall in a wheelchair. I just dropped dead, you know. is what happened. They had to get me restarted again. And I experienced, for me, I experienced a thing called, I don't care what it is that you think that you covered at this point. When you get ready to go to the other side, you ain't taking nothing with you but your soul. There is no U-Haul behind the hearse, you know. <laughs> so whatever you've been holding on to, you might as well just let go of it, because all we are is stewards of whatever it is that you think you got. You know, and I will tell you that that caused a major shift for me, and, and it's made a major shift in my life spiritually. You know, uh, we've gone back to the original faith that we came out of, and we're involved in that church now, and I like it. And, and I go there to identify, not to disidentify. And I go to meetings to become part of you instead of to be leading you. And this is what I do now in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the mission as a result of my grand opening is to become a part of instead of a part from. Because, you see, alcoholism, whether it be self-centeredness or active drinking, always makes you a part from. A part from rather than a part of. Doctor says I can run eight, ten years if I behave myself and do what I'm supposed to do. And... And I try to do that. I try to eat right, and I walk every day, and I do the things that I'm supposed to do because I'd like to hang out with you people as long as I can. I really would. You're my family. And that's what I want to do. 
I told you early on that I came here and the guy told me about the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I close, what I would like you to do is to be sure that when you're here and if you would like to hang in here with us, please stay here. you got nowhere else to go. Stay here until the magic is able to happen to you. Magic is something that happens for you and me and we can't see it or understand it. We don't know how it happened. It's like the magician. We never quite understand how he does the trick. But if you'll show up and be available, the magic will happen for your life. Magic happened for me on the way down here. I stopped in Nashville, Tennessee, and saw my mother and saw my sister, I mean my daughter, who's 25 years old. And she's out there sampling the active side of the marketing program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, she's doing advanced marketing, drinking and chasing cowboys and writing music and doing her deal. And we love each other, and we're tied to each other as a soul. And I said, I'm saving you a chair in AA when you're ready, baby. And she said, I know you are, Dad. When I'm ready, I'm going to call you. You know, but I ain't ready. I said, I understand that. She said to me, so she came down to see my mother, who's 87, 88 years old. And she said, could we go up to Papa's gravestone, up to the graveyard tonight? And I said, sure. So her and I went up to my where my father's buried in uh, Hillsboro, Tennessee, and we stood at the grave, and, and I pulled my car up there, my rent car, and put the lights on that tombstone, and there was my name. And it was a funny feeling I had because all of a sudden I had a sense of I'm the next generation to lay down. Yeah. And that's a funny feeling is what it is. And my life became very important. And she said, Dad, she said, can I sing a song that I just wrote for you and Papa? I said, sure can, baby. And she sang a song called Because You Love Me. And we stood out there in that crisp night with that moon shining and her singing to the top of her voice this song. And I cried like a baby and she cried like a baby. And we held each other and I said, honey, I really do love you. And she said, I love you too. That's because of you people, because that's the same daughter who my wife was pregnant with, who I tried to talk into having aborted, and my wife had the conviction to say, no, I'm not doing that. It's against my belief system to do that. And that's the daughter that I was not ready to have because I wanted to be out of that marriage. That's the daughter that filled me up on the way over here. It's all as a result of you people. God will do for us what we can't do for ourselves. There was a little old man, and he was walking along the beach, and very old man. And the tide was coming in, and as the tide comes in, it brings stuff with it, and it was bringing in sand dollars. And, and he would reach down in the ocean and pick up a sand dollar and examine it and throw it back out in the ocean. And he would watch it for a while, and then he would go a little further, and he'd reach down, he'd pick up another sand dollar and look at it and go, throw it back out in the ocean. And there was this guy who'd been observing this little old man doing this for probably close to an hour, and he finally walked over to that little old man, and he said, Sir, he said, I've been watching what you're doing, and I've been observing it, and he says... Uh, I see what you're doing, but I don't understand it. He said, there are thousands of sand dollars laying here on the beach. He said, how, how do you as one person expect to make a difference? 
And he reached down, he picked up another sand dollar, and he said, it'll make a difference to this one. And he went, and I'm here to tell you that tonight, as a result of Blackstone, you have made a difference to this one, and I hope I've touched you. Thank you.